I didn't check, but it'll be close. 1073 is where you should open your Bibles, John 17. We are in verses 20 through 26, as you will, I trust, remember. We're in the final section of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And you may remember that the whole of the prayer is easily divided and universally divided into three main sections, John 17, 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for himself with respect to the work the Father has given him to do, his desire to accomplish that work to the praise of his Father. In John 17, verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays, we're told, for his immediate disciples, those who were given to him by the Father, in that unique place as disciples to live with him during his earthly ministry, to bear witness to who he was, to hear his teaching, and of course, as we noted, to carry that teaching forward and to be his voice, his mouthpiece in the world under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then in John 17, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all who would believe in him through their word. That's you and me. But don't make a mistake and think that only verses 20 through 26 are about you and me, because everything we noted in 6 through 19 is also about you and me by uh, application as he prays for those disciples, so he prays for us. And so now we see him in this last section praying for us specifically. And it is, I hope, and I hope you never tire of thinking it this way, that this is a glorious thing, that Jesus, our Savior, would intercede then, some 2,000 years ago, for you and me as we sit here now, and that he is actively, right now, interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. And so as we come to this last last section, we also saw that it can be divided into three areas as well. You might think that we pastors just make this up, but it's always three because it's a perfect number. So, but our three sections here, again, I think very clearly, first verses 20 through 23, to be united as one. That is the burden of his heart, that we would be united as one. Then verse 24, what we'll look at this morning, that we might see his glory. And then verse 25 and 26, that we might come to know the love of God. I think I mentioned that as we move into these, including today, but especially next week, I find myself out of my depth. I cannot grasp or understand these things. And so my attempt this morning, as it will be next week, is to communicate as best as I can the glory and the wonder of what Jesus prays for And so we are in the second of these three. We are in verse 24 this morning. I'm going to read verse uh, 20 through 26, the whole section, as we normally do. And as I always ask you, would you please stand as we hear God's word read and as we receive it as the word of God. Hear your Savior praying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they might be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray now that your blessing would be upon the preaching and the hearing of your word, that your spirit would take and press these words into our hearts and minds, our lives, that you would bring conviction, Father, that you would bring comfort, that you would bring all that we need according to all that you have purposed for us in him, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The three things, the three things for which our Savior prays in these final verses, as we've identified them, are of utmost importance for us as believers to understand. They really are. With the rest of this incredible prayer, he prays in the presence of his disciples out loud for them to hear and thereby for us to hear. It all serves to strengthen our assurance of faith and to dispel all doubts that we belong to him, body and soul. Remember, I, I began this by saying this is really a prayer about assurance. Jesus is concerned that we be assured that we belong to him, that we are his by his grace alone. And so this prayer is written, it was prayed out loud in their hearing and now in ours for that reason. The entire purpose is so that we might know that we are among those whom the Father has given to the Son and that we are his and he is ours. And so the last time that we were together in our study, we noted that our Savior's prayer for the unity of his body uh, was very important for us to understand as well. And there we noted as well three things that regard this unity for which he prays. It's a unity that we noted is mystical and spiritual. It is akin to, it is like the unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the unity of the perfect trinity. That's the unity he prays for, and that's the unity he is establishing and has established in us Secondly, is a unity grounded in the truth. It is based on the truth of his word. It will be we who believe through their word, the teaching of the disciples as they are sent out by Jesus in the book of Acts to proclaim the gospel in all the world. This unity is grounded in truth. We have no unity with those who deny the truths of the scripture. Regardless of intent or sincerity, we have no unity with those who do not acknowledge what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ, about salvation, about the body of Christ, Jesus Christ, etc. And it's thirdly, a unity that is established by God. It's God who establishes it. And it is we, his people, who are called to maintain it. 
And so there's a synergism, there's a working together between God who establishes his people who maintain it, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, that as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, he says, to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These are the ways in which we maintain unity, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. This is God establishing. There is one body, not two, not a hundred. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That, that is the picture of the unity which God established, which we are called to maintain. But Jesus has much more to pray for us. And don't we know that? Because there's much more for which we need prayer. And he prays to the Father on the eve of his suffering and death. There is more regarding you and me as believers. We are on his mind as he prepares to go to the cross. That is a stunning statement itself. We are on his mind as he faces the most horrific aspects of suffering that he will ever know in his humanity. We, you and I, are on his mind. He is praying for us. And in verse 24, he prays that we might be with him where he is to behold his glory. You no doubt remember the words of John 14, very famous. When the disciples, knowing that he's going away, asks, ask Jesus, where is it that you're going? He says, you know the, where I'm going. And Thomas, of course, says, we don't know where you're going, Lord. And he tells them that he's going away to prepare a place for them. He's already anticipating what he's going to pray in this prayer, that, that he longs and wants them to be with him. He says, I need to go first ahead of you through this cross and suffering and the resurrection, the ascension into glory. I need to go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. He's already told them this. Now he prays it. And the, the fact that he prays it is a wonderful, wonderful encouragement to us. It is truly an amazing prayer that he prays for us. And I remind you of who's praying. It is Jesus, our Savior, the eternal Son of God. And he is praying to his Father. We see that throughout the prayer, don't we? Father, 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 over and over again. Father, I'm coming to you. And as we noted before, the Father delights to hear from the Son and the Father delights to answer the Son. And so as we look at this one verse in verse 24, I want to mention three things or look at three things with you this morning in this very specific prayer. First, our Savior's will. Secondly, our Savior's love. And thirdly, our Savior's glory. All of those are here in this one verse and in the surrounding verses, and we'll see that as we move through it. But notice, first of all, our Savior's will. It's only one verse. You see it right in the beginning. Father, he says, verse 24, I desire, I desire. 
Now, it is unfortunate, and I'm not alone in this understanding, but it is unfortunate that the ESV, along with many modern translations, really miss the mark here because it's not desire, really. It's a stronger word. It's a stronger word. Desire reflects almost to us and our minds a wish. Cross my fingers, hope as best we can, but that's not what Jesus says. Literally what he says is, Father, I will. I will. And by that statement, I will, he is saying something far more powerful than simply saying, Father, it is my desire. It is the Son's will. And if you know your theology about the Trinity, what is the Son's will is the will of the Father as well. And so as he says, I will, he is reflecting what is the eternal will of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, Father, this is my will. He could have said, and it's your will as well. Now, I don't want you to miss the contrast because we are hours away in this very place. It's the next chapter We're hours away where Jesus will come before his father, throw himself on the ground alone, his disciples sleeping, and cry out to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Now that's different because the will expressed there in the Garden of Gethsemane reflects the struggle, the sinless struggle within his humanity, wrestling with the prospect of a cruel death. And there he, for our sakes, submits himself to all that the Father had purposed and willed from eternity past. In Gethsemane, he is a sin-bearer standing in our place and being obedient even to the death upon the cross. So when he says, not my will, it is the the sinless struggle of his humanity that for our sake as the perfect Savior who committed no sin, submitted himself entirely as Adam didn't, as Israel didn't, as the new Adam, as the new Israel of God, perfect obedience to the Father. He needed to do that as much as he needed to be baptized, though he committed no sin. He needed it for our sake so that all righteousness would be fulfilled. And so there in the garden, he says, not not my will, as the sin bearer called, set apart to be the one who bears the wrath of God in his body, not my will, but thine be done. It was his perfect submission. It had to be. But this prayer reflects with one accord the will of the Father. This is the expression of a son coming to the father. This is the perfect will of the son and the perfect will of the father coming together. They are the same. God is not divided. There are not two wills within the Godhead, but one alone. And brothers and sisters, this will being one with the father and the son coming to the father means that this will not be thwarted. It will not be denied by the father. God will answer it. As one commentator said, he will answer it because he has already promised it. And Jesus is coming in accordance with the promise of the Father to the Son. 
and simply saying, this is my will, and it's yours as well. Psalm 2, ask of me, says the Father, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Translation, I will give you a glory beyond all glory for what you have done, for fulfilling the task, accomplishing the purpose. Remember verses 1 through 5, I've accomplished what you have given me to do. For doing all of that, I will give this to you. And so in accordance with the promise of the Father, in perfect harmony with the will of the Father, the Son comes and he says, I will. This is what I will. Not just simply I desire or wish, but this is what I will. And the Father will surely answer, as we will no doubt learn and see. Secondly, this is the Savior's will in accordance, perfect accordance with the Father's will. Secondly, it is about our Savior's love. Now, this may be harder to see, but it's very clear in, I believe, this verse, as well as the verses surrounding it. Next week, again, we're going to speak more of the Father's love to the Son and our interest in that, which, again, I've, I've not even been able to fathom. And I hope by next week I'll be able to give you some measure of understanding of what that means. But I want you to see here that this is a a picture of his love as well for us. Father, he says, I desire, I will, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That is an expression of love. Notice once again, Jesus uses the language we saw in our first study in verses 1 through 5, he uses this very important language. You know, we we said then that when the Father and the Son talk about us, if you don't like to be talked about, I'm sorry, this is a good way of being talked about. But when they talk about us as believers, this is how they talk about us. The Son speaking to the Father about those whom you have given to me. The Father speaking to the Son about those whom I, the Father, have given to you as a love gift. That's the way they talk about us. This is language of love. This is a gift the Father has given to the Son in anticipation of all that the Son will do. When he goes to the cross, suffers and dies, takes the wrath that we deserve... This is all about love. And this is why it's so hard for me to comprehend and understand that we are those who are loved with the same love with which he loves the son. That's amazing to me. But this is all about love. We're given as this love gift to Jesus. And Jesus is praying with the Father, fully understanding this. Those whom you have given to me, Father, as a love gift. This is his will is rooted in eternal love. It's what motivates him to pray for us. Because he loves us with an eternal, everlasting love. That's amazing to me. That he would love some uh, such as us who are unworthy. But that's what makes the gospel the gospel. I was reminded as I was thinking about this, you have to understand, of course, 
that last week I was providentially hindered from being here, but uh, I was preparing to preach this sermon last week, and I was reminded in the midst of my week last week of uh, everything that was happening in my life as far as what I was experiencing, and an illustration came to my mind. So this is a little bit dated, at least as far as one week, but I, I do enjoy, just so you know, playing golf. I'm not very good at playing golf. Those who've played with me will tell you that very clearly. But I do enjoy it. I don't ever get to play as often as I want. That seems to be the fate of all who play golf. It's never as much as you want. But I do enjoy the two events that we have every year, one in the spring, another in the fall. And so as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about golf and about enjoyment of golf and last week at our third annual Boyajian Invitational, as we gathered in Ocean City, I thought of this illustration because, again, I was supposed to preach last week. The illustration comes from a movie called The Greatest Game Ever Played. It's a golf movie. It's based on a true story, true story of 20-year-old Francis Wimette. The setting is the 1913 U.S. Open, which was also the location of the 2022 U.S. Open at the oldest golf-oriented country club in the United States, called simply the Country Club, in Brookline, Massachusetts. In fact, you can still to this day see the house where Francis Wimet lived in near the course. Now, the movie, to be honest, is thoroughly enjoyable and very moving, but it takes a lot of liberties with some of the facts of the story. But nonetheless, the overall story is accurate. Francis, we met as a young golfer who was able to play as an amateur in the U.S. Open in 1913. He went on to face in that U.S. Open two of the greatest golfers in the world at that time, Harry Varden and Ted Ray, both who were from England. Now, the movie deals with the relationship, especially between Francis and his father, who was a very old-fashioned, hard-working man who did not want him to waste his life playing golf. In fact, he actually forbade him from playing. But through a series of circumstances that I won't go through, Francis finds himself in a playoff in the 1913 U.S. Open, true story, for the championship against two formidable opponents. Midway through that round, that playoff, Ted Ray is eliminated from contention. There's no possibility he could win. And it came down to Wiemet and Varden, who also happened to be a childhood hero of Francis. Now, the movie again dramatizes the end and takes great liberty he didn't win by sinking the last putt by one stroke. He actually won by three strokes or more, some argue. But it is a powerful ending filled with deep emotion, very much like Field of Dreams is for those who love baseball, which I do as well. And so predictably, I cry at the end of each one of them. The scene that stands out to me and relates to what we're studying now is when Francis finally wins the tournament He's lifted up on the shoulders of the crowds along with his famous, true story, 10-year-old caddy to bask in the glory of his victory. It's a beautiful scene. 
captures the emotion of the moment as the crowds are clamoring around him, handing them money. And he says, no, no, give it to the, give it to the caddy, give it to the caddy. I can't take this money. And as all of that is happening, Francis looks down from the shoulders of those upon whom he's hoisted, and he sees his father there rejoicing in the moment with great pride. It really is an incredible moment of the story. It so perfectly captures the, the storyline of, of what they did in this movie. And so you may be asking, great, Pastor, you love golf. What's the point? Well, here's the point. It is the ordinary human desire to want to have with us when we are experiencing success or the glory of success, those we love. What child doesn't know that as you think about it in your childhood and growing up? I know I had this experience when I played baseball since I was six or seven, my father coaching me all the way. What child doesn't remember when you, you do something really well and you turn and you look to the one who's there that you love because you want them to share with you in this glory because you love them. They love you. And that was true of the, this movie. The father, hard, it seems, exterior, on the exterior, nonetheless loved his son and he stood there with all the crowd looking at his son with eyes filled with pride and the son responding and looking back and saying, I didn't say the word, it was no words. I'm so glad you're here. His mother was there, of course, supportive all the way. I'm so glad you're here, Dad, because I want you to see this and enjoy it with me. That's an ordinary human desire. And I bring the illustration up for this reason. That's exactly what Jesus wants. He says to his father, I, I will, Father, I will that those whom you have given to me would be with me and would behold my glory. I want to share this with them. That is an expression of deep love that you and I this morning or any time in our lives should never doubt because this prayer is answered and the Father will indeed bring it to pass. Jesus is praying, I want the people you have given to me whom I love to be with me. I want them to see my glory. That is my will, Father. You gave them to me in love before the foundation of the world, and I have loved them, and I will love them to the end. When I finally come to that place of my glory and exaltation, I don't want anyone there more than I want them. I want them because you gave them to me. I want them to be there. I want them to see my glory. That's Jesus' love for us, our Savior's love. Well, we finally turn to our Savior's glory because that's what he says, isn't it? I want them to see me in my glory. I want them to see me in this radiance the effulgence, as some like to use that word, the, the glorious glory of my glory. I want them to be there. I want them to see it. Now, please note and read carefully the text and what he says. 
to see my glory that you have given me. To see my glory that you have given me. This is not the glory that is inherent in who Jesus is. It is not that Jesus, when he came down from heaven, got rid of that glory. It was veiled by his humanity. Think of the transfiguration. It was veiled by his work as our mediator. He did not receive the glory that he rightly deserved, being the Son of God come in human flesh. He deserved that everyone who ever came in contact with him would immediately fall to the ground, but that's not what they did. They mocked him. They spit upon him. They abused him. They criticized him. They lied about him. They did everything that you would do to someone who is not very glorious. This is not that glory. That glory, according to theologians, and I think rightly, was laid aside, was not claimed to be his because he didn't need to. It was already his, Philippians chapter 2. It's not referring to that glory. It's referring to the glory that the Father gives to the Son as our Redeemer and Mediator. It's seen in his exaltation as he is raised into heaven at the ascension and seated upon God's right-hand throne. How is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God? Our catechism answers Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man he is advanced to the highest favor of God the Father, with all fullness of joy and glory and power over all things in heaven and on earth, and doth gather and defend his church, subdue their enemies, furnishes his ministers and people with gifts and graces, and maketh intercession for them. It's Philippians 2. It's what happens after we read of his humiliation, suffering, and death. Therefore, the writer says, Paul, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, a name mocked everywhere today. But at that name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what he prays. That's the glory he wants us to see. A glory bestowed upon him as our mediator, our faithful savior and redeemer. According to Philippians 2, granted to him in response to that great work which he accomplished. Now when Jesus says what he says, that they might be with me, that they might see my glory... You know what this is, right? What this is is what older theologians called the beatific vision. This is seeing God. That's why I had read in Exodus 33, no man can see God and live. But this is it. This is seeing God. That's what he's saying, that we might see God. He is God and glorious In Matthew 5, he taught in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. That's what he's talking about, to see God. Sinclair Ferguson quoted this week in our studies, uh, couples, as we were 
together says this about uh, this idea of seeing God, the beatific vision. He says, the beatific vision is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that we will see God. That is the essence of it. Then we have to ask, what does Jesus mean by seeing God? We have to say that it is not a matter of physical sight for the simple reason that God is invisible. He is the invisible God. Many Christians tend to think that when we die, we will see God because he will then become visible to us. No, that's not true. His character, his being is not changing. He will remain invisible. However, he is not going to change, he says, because we die. This is the sheer mystery of his being. He is not the kind of being who is in his own nature visible. But he makes himself visible. How? And then he says this, very helpful. The main way we are to think of the beatific vision is God has made himself visible in the most perfect way that human beings are capable of apprehending. That is in Jesus Christ. For example, the New Testament speaks about seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One way I love to put it is in John 1.1, which says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The language, Ferguson goes on to say, of John uses here is like the idea of being face-to-face with God, the Son and the Father face-to-face. The beauty of what John says here is that the Son, who was face-to-face with the Father, has now become face-to-face with us. So we see in the Son's face the reflection of the beauty, glory, and the marvel of God's being. We see God. And that's our great hope. That is what Jesus prays for. That is what he desires, if you will. And no cheap imitation from man's imagination in our day and age can compare to what will be revealed to us and in us when this prayer is answered. Let me suggest four very quick things then by way of application things that I hope you see already but maybe need to be reminded of. The first is this, what confidence we have as those who belong to Jesus. If we belong to him, this is our destiny. This is not only our hope, it is our destiny because the Father will answer this prayer. He will bring us to where Jesus is and we will see God and we will see his glory. How can the Father possibly refuse to answer the Son? It's the same will, the same purpose, the same design. So brothers and sisters, we have a confidence. This is for our assurance that we might know that we are in him. Secondly, we have a peace. We have a peace in the midst of all of our trials, all of our sufferings, as jars of clay into into whom has been poured the extraordinary measure of his grace so that in all of the cracks of our lives, the grace of God is shining forth to a world, a watching world. We have peace. And Paul says to the Corinthians, we, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, cracked and failing, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. 
beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. Brothers and sisters, by faith, look to the things that are unseen and let the peace of God guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, we have a motivation, don't we? We have a motivation. This was the language of John in his first epistle. You know it well. We read it earlier. Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now we are. We are God's children through Christ. And what we will be has not yet appeared, looking to the future. But we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Well, what does that mean? Everyone, everyone who has this hope within himself purifies himself just as he is pure. That's your motivation. This prayer is true. It will come to pass. If it's true, if it's for your confidence and peace, it must be for your motivation to live holy, pure lives because the one into whose image you are being made is himself pure. And he is working that in our lives as well. And finally, it is, and we don't like tests, right? Students are saying, don't talk about tests. We don't like them, but it is a test. This is a test. In our study of 1 John, we're noting various tests or marks of true Christianity. We looked at the first one this past week. By this we have come to know him, John writes, if we keep his commandments. You know what John's saying? Don't, don't ever begin to tell me that you know God if you're not keeping his commandments. Don't, don't do that. Don't say to someone, I know God, but not keeping his commandments, it makes no sense. In the same way, I think this is a test. This reality, this prayer, what Jesus asks. I believe we can see this desire to be with Jesus and to see him in all of his glory as a mark of a true Christian. I think Romans 8 has that in mind and in view when it says our bodies inwardly are groaning together for a glory yet to be revealed in us. I I think it's all about this prayer, all about what Jesus asks and wills before the Father. The greatest blessing of the Christian life is to see Jesus. The greatest longing of the redeemed heart is to see Jesus in his glory. It is the ultimate prize of every Christian to see Jesus If you're sitting here this morning, it can be a test for you. Do you have a longing, a desire, more than any other desire? Scrape away every other desire. See what remains. Is there that fundamental desire to see Jesus in his glory? That's why we're redeemed. That's what he prays for. That's what we will, in fact, see. The glory of Jesus. Let me see Jesus Let me see Jesus is the cry of every true Christian. If you are Christ, this must mean everything to you. It must. It meant everything to the saints who came before us. You know, Pastor Fisher and I both love Samuel Rutherford, his letters, his writings, his life. In 1660, with the death of Oliver Cromwell, the end of the Commonwealth, and the restoration of... Charles II, we now have Charles III, it's a long time. Charles II is king, Rutherford again found himself at odds with the state. 
He was removed from church office, charged with treason, and summoned to appear before the British Parliament. When the summons came, however, Rutherford was already on his deathbed. You know the story. We've shared it with you many times. In the final verse of the last hymn we'll sing this morning, he explains why he could not answer their summons. He had a more important call from the Lord. Rutherford died on March 30th, 1661. It's recorded that his dying words were simply this, glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. There is nothing there but glory. It marks the end of all suffering and pain, all disappointment and grief, all confusion and chaos of everything that is part of the old order of things. And it marks the beginning of eternity that is filled with immeasurable glory where we shall see him as he is and where we shall be like him. Let us pray. Our Father, as we consider these incredibly deep, glorious truths, we pray that our hearts would be filled beyond measure with thanksgiving, overflowing with gratitude to you, that we are, if we are Christ, numbered among those whom you have given to him as a gift of love and the ones that he longs to be with him so that we might behold his glory. Father, would you so capture our hearts that we might, as those who have this hope within us, purify ourselves even as he is pure. For we ask this with thanksgiving and great hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.